tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party. Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Welcome to My Kind of Weird, a podcast where two people sit down and pitch three kinds of media, something watchable, something readable, and something listenable, to see if at the end of the pod each person says, that's my kind of weird. I'm your host, Anthony Pollock, and joining us on the podcast today is comic book writer Gary Proudly from Warrenjiri Land, also known as Melbourne, Australia. Gary Proudly's webcomic is a Viking-themed anthology called Talgard, featuring a Viking warrior and his many adventures. Talgard is out at the moment through Just Out Publishing. Gary, are you ready to get weird with me today? I am indeed. So, Gary, please present your Something Watchable. Okay, so my something watchable is a Canadian TV show called Letterkenny. There's something real pervy about that word, taste. How are the first few bites tasting? Everything tasting to your liking? I see you've had a taste. Oh, yeah, you like how it tastes? Check, please. Which one of you has beat the shit out of my cousin? Happy me. That's how they do it in Canada then, eh? Now, Letterkenny has only been watchable reasonably recently in Australia. Um, it's a show that I'd found links on, on YouTube. Friends had sent me links to, to bits. I've got a friend who lives in Canada. Um, but unfortunately, it was one of those media that you had to pirate if you wanted to watch in Australia, and I wasn't willing to do that. So <laughs> I had to wait until it came out on iTunes in the last six to 12 months before I could actually watch it. Uh, so Letterkenny is the, the closest I could sort of way I could describe it is by saying it's the Trailer Park Boys meets Kevin Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It it definitely has that feel to it, especially uh, given Kevin Smith's sort of uh, penchant for Canadian humour. So, yeah, I can very much see that for sure. Yeah, it's it's about a a small town in Canada of 5,000 people called Letterkenny. Um, and it's just about the lives of the various groups of people that live in that city. Uh, there's the skids, which are basically meth heads, the hockey players, yep. and the farmers. So I guess what I really dug about this when I checked it out, like I I thought I had heard of this show before, but when, when I actually checked it out, um, it's actually the exact opposite of what I thought it was. For some reason, I thought Letterkenny was a animated comedy. I, I don't know why I thought that, but... um. Uh, yeah, uh, I love the dry wit and humour in it um, and I just like the sort of the monotone that the main two characters sort of uh, just throw at those that I guess really despise their way of life which is kind of comforting in its own sort of perverse way. So, um, yeah, uh, unfortunately I wasn't able to see all of it because, yeah, it's hard to get in Australia but... um. Um, I liked what I saw. Yeah, it's um, th- there's a lot of elements. Like, it's a show that's a lot deeper than it appears on the surface. Um, yeah. The initial thing that sort of attracted me to it is 
people who live in the city have, tend to have a disdain for people who live in the country. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed sort of, I guess you could almost call it the juxtaposition of this really sort of urbane dialogue coming from hick accents, somebody wearing plaid, mm. um, but sort of really fast-paced dialogue that, that belies the underlying sort of intelligence of the people, of the characters. Mm. Mm. And, I mean, I just, uh, there's that juxtaposition, but there's also the juxtaposition of they saw the hicks uh they're actually quite intelligent in in terms of their quips that they throw at people that they don't like or they don't like them. Yeah, they are. I mean, there's. I, I would have to say that they're not mean spirited necessarily. Um, they're they're certainly sort of a bit like that. I don't know if if it was like you, but when I was in high school with my friends, we would insult each other, but it was never mean spirited. And if someone outside of our friend groups insulted one of us, that would be a very different kettle of fish. Um, like it's a really great show for subtly breaking down masculinity, toxic and otherwise, mm. and sort of some of the ways that we interact with each other is by these sort of insulting quips. Um, yep. Sort of as the show progresses, um, Squirrely Dan, which is the, the larger gentleman with the beard, uh, mm-hmm. often brings up his women's studies class. So yep. whenever they're discussing sort of any hot topic or, or, or just, you know, anybody that's not straight white male, uh, it's mm. often put in context by Squirrelly Dan's women's studies professor, um, <laughs> which I think is it's wonderful to see this sort of, you know, enormous bearded fat guy, which, you know, it's very easy to see myself in that, wearing overalls, not so easy to see myself in that bit, but <laughs> discussing um, homophobia in this sort of rural setting and how it applies to them and how it maybe wouldn't be acceptable to use um, homosexual people to lure in degenerates that have been bothering them so they could beat them up and, you know, how using people as bait is is homophobic and explaining that to the other, the other hicks, uh, you know, it, 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 by recontextualizing all of this stuff, it makes me step back and sort of reassess my own views on these. Mm, mm. So yeah, that's uh yeah, that's, that's a, uh, uh, it's, uh, I feel like it's, um it's something that needs to be discovered for sure. And uh, when the, the bits that I've watched of it, uh, it's it just kind of makes me wonder, like, how have I not heard of this already and how have I not watched it already? But obviously I just feel like it's it's one of those uh, shows that has the potential, like once it's a bit more accessible over here in Australia, that uh, will definitely explode. Um, I can the, the funny thing is about shows like this, I find it's the people that are being directly targeted in the narrative are the ones that will actually enjoy it in droves but they won't conceive the con the context behind it and mm. why that's targeting well not really targeting them as such but it's addressing the issues that people make that you know homophobia isn't okay toxic masculinity is not okay and all those sorts of things so um but then that just goes 
to further emphasize, uh, I guess, the, the just how brilliant the writing is. Um, do you know who wrote the show? Um, I'm not 100% sure. I believe the main character, the guy who plays Wayne, Jared Kieser, I think he wrote or created a lot of it. But Okay. Yeah, uh, he was one of the creators of the show. Yeah. I'm not sure how many episodes he wrote, or, yeah. or what the breakdown of that is. Now, my something watchable is a little cartoon uh, that came out in the 1990s called Gargoyles by uh, Disney. One thousand years ago, superstition and the sword ruled. It was a time of darkness. It was a world of fear. It was the age of gargoyles. <laughs> Warriors by night. We were betrayed by the humans we had sworn to protect. Frozen in stone by a magic spell for a thousand years. Um, I will kind of go to my grave saying the most successful cartoon is this show. And the the reason for that is here we have sort of this these misfits that are presented to the modern world who are from basically out of time and I guess it goes into uh, them wanting to be accepted and failing to sort of understand the I guess sometimes the ramifications of the actions uh, that they're that they're making at the same time it provides a really good narrative on sort of the the views that sort of mainstream humanity has on anyone that is different. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's a cartoon. It's, uh, it's actually, it's really deep. It's quite serious in nature. There are of course, sort of funnier elements to it, but, um, yeah, I would, I would say it's, uh, the most successful cartoon that, uh, Disney have ever produced. And it's one of those cartoons as well that you just go to yourself, really? Disney did this? I just don't believe it. Yeah, there's a, like, I, I'll admit, um, so I was passingly familiar with this cartoon. Um, I vaguely recall it being uh, like a, a cartoon on in the mornings uh, when I was maybe 14 or 15. And I think it was the cartoon that came on uh, at the time that I had to leave for school. Okay. So I believe I've seen an awful lot of half episodes of Gargoyle. <laughs> I don't have strong abiding memories of it because I never saw a resolution to any story. Yeah. Um, so in preparation for the for this uh, podcast, I went back and started rewatching it. Um, now I watched half of the first season, mm. but I only saw two stories. So mm. what you say about wow, did Disney actually make this, really applies here because the whole, the first mm. five episodes are one story. Yes. Yeah, um, and if you, uh, as you get further into the show, eventually it starts with the whole uh, Goliath doing the whole the the 1,000 years ago, that introduction uh, doesn't actually kick off until the first, uh, well, until the gargoyles actually end up in modern-day America and after, you know, Xanatos is uh, revealed as the bad guy. Mm. So it kind of, it's, for a kid's show, it kind of had that plan to never give any sort of spoilers away in terms of what this thing is actually about, which I find quite impressive. I, I find it quite impressive that this show was greenlit by Disney of all 
license, you know? So, I mean, that would be reasonably impressive for a kid's show now, let alone in the mid-90s. Yeah, and, I Um, mean, it's an original property. Yeah, it it was a very complicated sort of, I mean, there were betrayals after betrayals after betrayals in that first sort of five episodes. Yeah. I mean, if, if I had one criticism for it, it would be, as an Australian, I cringe deeply whenever I hear Americans doing Australian accents. Because <laughs> maybe, maybe one out of 20 gets it right, maybe. So I can't possibly imagine what it feels like to be a Scottish person and hear yeah. Americans just do awful, awful approximations of a Scottish accent. Yes. Because yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't sound right to my ear. Mm, yeah, so yeah, it it doesn't sound right. You are you are correct there. Um uh and uh, I guess it's kind of reminds me of the um I don't know if you ever watched the X-Men cartoon, but the whenever they they had a Aussie character on there um and uh his uh the accent sounded more like a sort of a British tourist than it sounded like an yeah. Australian. So yeah, it was Pyro, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was Pyro, correct. Um vaguely like Cockney sounding. Yes, very much so. Which <laughs> there's a small part of the back of my brain that says that I think Cockney sounding would have been the Australian accent for the first forty or fifty years of Australia existing mm. as a European colonized country. Mm. Um, I'm yeah. sure I read that somewhere. So yeah, I can see where they'd get there, but it's not like it's that hard to do a little research on that what the Australian accent sounds like. <laughs> so to close out my pitch on this uh, is I'm just going to go through the voice cast alone. So Keith David, who if people aren't familiar with uh, Keith David by name, uh, he's pretty much been the main sort of African-American who tends to turn up in early John Carpenter films. If you're a horror fan like myself, and you, then you've probably seen uh, The Thing to death. He's the uh, the gentleman who ends up uh, surviving, besides um, the main character. Uh, he's now, there's that person alone. There's Ed Asner is a voice character in there. If you're a Star Trek fan, for some reason they decided that uh, Star Trek actors would make great bad guys in this show, which is very strange. Um, So, for instance, the one that plays Xanatos is Jonathan Frakes, who played uh, Commander Will Riker in Star Trek The Next Generation, and his love interest, played by Marina Sirtis in that very show, plays Demona. So... It's yeah that that's a bit odd, but uh, and then there's there's quite a few uh, other well-known voice actors that end up on this show at some point as well. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of Star Trek actors that play bad guys, which is an interesting decision to say the least. Yeah, I mean it's it's an incredible cast. So Gary, present your something readable. Okay, so my something readable is a oh it's probably a thirty thirty five year old. Single issue of Fantastic Four. Uh, yes. It is written and drawn by Walt Simonson. Yeah. And it is um, an incredible sort of uh, showcase of the medium of comics. 
So, right. yep. Um, essentially, now it's a, it's a very complicated um, comment to read. Can I ask? Did you manage to get a hold of it? I did. I got a hold of it. Thank Christ for Comicsology. I don't know how else I would have got it. Um, right. Not not paid through the butt for it. Um, no. So yes, de- de- yes, definitely read it uh, in preparation for this podcast. Right. So now the Comicsology version of it, because this is what Comicsology does. They of course cut out the letter pages. Now hmm. there was a key in the letter page of that issue explaining how to read the comic. Did you figure it out okay. without that key? Um, I mean, it was difficult. I, I, I mean, I, well, that I guess that depends on, on what the answer is. Hey, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. But I mean, so, uh, so I, I was able to follow in terms of, uh, I mean, the various different jumping points and all that type of stuff. And um, yeah, so so I'll, in, I'll just explain for people yeah. what what happens. So each page of the comic or the first, you know, 18-odd pages of the comic is separated out into two columns. Um, the first column runs through natural time and the second column uh, is a battle through time for Reed Richards and Doctor Doom. So, so basically it's Fantastic Four semicolon tenant. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's, it's very, very much like that. But what I especially love about this story is, so, you know, you read the, the, the normal column and uh, it's a fairly pedestrian story. It's just a normal superhero affair. There's nothing unusual about it. Yeah. But with the Read and Doom story, they jump around in time and each mm. time at the end of the page is an indication of where they've gone in time. So you mm. jump backward and forward in the book page to page to find yep. where they've gone in the normal linear story mm. to find the story as it plays out for those two characters. Now, yep. what this does is that moves you about physically in space, which changes time. And it really, as a, a book, almost did as much for me as a writer to understand how the movement of time is actually the movement of space in a comic book than anything except for, say, uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Right, yeah. It's only really a thing that you can do in comics. You couldn't do it in many other print mediums. Maybe a choose-your-own-adventure book, but I'm not sure it would work as well because as the two parallel stories happen, occasionally they interact. So uh, Johnny, Ben, and Sue interact with Reed and Doom throughout their story, but they're doing it in a, a way that's sort of out of sync. Yeah, they're kind of doing it in a way that's almost observational. They're kind of uh, seeing seeing an event occur, but they're, they're very much sort of like the almost like the audience surrogate for this issue because yes, absolutely. they don't know what's going on as much as the reader doesn't know what's going on, at least for the, for the first read. Mm, that's exactly right. So... For me, there's there's a couple of things in this I feel that that I'm going to address. So the first, uh, the probably the now when did this come out? It wasn't in the seventies. No, 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 no. This is eighties, maybe early nineties or late eighties. Early nineties, yeah. yeah. I feel my own kind of prejudice against the Fantastic Four is making me not enjoy this book as much as other people would. Um, I didn't 
start liking the Fantastic Four until uh, their son was actually introduced in the sort of the mid-90s. So, and I kind of felt their son having mutant powers gave a bit of a, an extra dynamic to the whole Fantastic Four shtick. But for me, I've never really liked this sort of the the pretentiousness of how Reed Richards is written, that he's a lot more highly intelligent than the reader themselves. And I feel like that's kind of the the reason why certain people won't read a Fantastic Four book or won't continue to read a Fantastic Four book. I've never liked the kind of the the trailing speak that links to each page and each panel that uh, Reed Richards has to explain exactly what he's doing because a lot of the time it's too much sci-fi gobbledygook that's uh, that's just too much for me personally. And the other problem as well is I spend more time emphasising and sympathising with Doctor Doom than I do Reed Richards. So I don't know if that's just me and, and my problem, but that's that's what I find that happens whenever I read a Fantastic Four book. I don't think that's wrong. I mean, that Doom's basically set up as a fifth member um, mm. as far as, you know, the book is concerned. Look, yeah. I, the, the criticism with, with Reed is... Um, it's a valid one. The the sort of very verbose style of read, though, it's it's hard to pull off. Like, so Stan Lee mm. did it really well back in the day, but Stan Lee's style of writing comics doesn't work as well today. No. Um, the way no. Walt Simonson wrote Reed was basically it felt a lot like Stan writing Reed. Yeah, um, yeah. he does just do long winded expositional and, and not even like story expositional dialogue, just read talks a lot. Yeah. And and you know, that's a I guess a character trait. Um and if that puts you off the book, I can understand why you don't like it. That's always yeah. sort of been secondary for me. Like Fantastic Four is sci fi. Um yeah. oh yeah. 100%. And I love that. And Fantastic Four is a book about families mm. primarily and not every writer got that or put that front and centre. Mm. And I think that sells the book short a little bit more than Reed being hard to relate to. Yeah, there's that. And this issue specifically reads more like a flash and reverse flash trope with Reed Richards and Doctor Doom oh. sort of etched on top of one another. It's very it felt very much like a flash comic. Oh, disappearing and yeah, the disappearing and reappearing stuff. But I can see when you where you come from in terms of uh, understanding the difference between time and space and how certain causality in events can affect other causality in events later on and how there can be sort of like a cause and effect that can go forward as well as backwards. So it's a great sort of masterclass in that respect mm. it doesn't change the fact though i i think i just i i think i'm just a reed richards hater i think that's my problem gary i i you know i have no problem with that <laughs> I, i'm not i'm not here as much even to sell the characters although i do love to do that because i'm quite an ff fan um yeah but just this specific issue i really love what simonson does in sort of making the implicit 
that I knew that space was time in a comic book. You know, each space that a, a panel takes up is a moment in time or a short period of time uh, and sort of plays with that a lot more in the form of comics. Mm, mm. Good, good pitch, good pitch. Now, my pitch is for something readable, that is, is Grit Issue 1, which came out last year uh, from Brian Wickman and Kevin Castaniero. hope I haven't butchered that surname. And it was published by Scout Comics. Now, did you get to have a bit of a look at this one? I absolutely did, yes. Okay. So I'll um, present my pitch. Um, now, it's basically about this sort of old sort of journeyman slash farmer slash we get sort of the I guess I guess idea that he may have been a warrior at some point and sort of he finds himself in the company of a wannabe doomsday cult which wants to bring about the resurrection of some sort of giant beast whether it's a demon or what have you although we find out in later issues spoilers that this series is very demon sort of uh they're the main antagonists now he always carries an axe around whether that's chopping wood or what have you and towards the end of this this sort of issue he kind of is a bit like a uh a ash from like evil dead character except inserted into sign of into sort of a fantasy setting there's i mean the the artwork is sort of uh, drawn in a way that's very rough in style which kind of works to to the effect of the the sort of the gore cuz it doesn't feel like gore in certain panels it feels like like just kind of this this celebration of warriors versus monsters and it's um uh it's sort of uh if you've seen the witcher or played the game i feel like it's a comic book that you'll really gravitate towards and really enjoy and you'll certainly pick up the other two issues that have been released so far now what what did you think about it um I, I was not as sort of uh, gung-ho on it. I, I think I sort of had a look and there was like, I think 11 pages that were just fight scenes with basically no dialogue beyond expletives. Mm, yeah. um, and it didn't seem much to be progressing the plot. Um, so it seemed to be a bit gratuitous, okay. um, which I don't necessarily have a problem with, but I think this just went just that tiny bit too far on the wrong side of the seesaw for me. Like, um, I read this not too long after reading Headlopper, which has got a lot of gratuitous sort of um, action scenes in it. But Mm. Headlopper didn't seem to go over, whereas this one did a little bit. Okay. What isn't sort of filled in with action scenes is intriguing in terms of world building. Okay. Um, I, I don't know whether or not they'll pay off on that. It's a bit like watching the first episode of Lost. (laughs) there was so much going on there it makes me intrigued to have a look at some more um but i can't say whether or not it's good until i read more of it and find out whether the payoff's there or not yeah Yeah. um now the the gratuitous violence thing that's like i'm very willing to admit that's just a personal preference Yeah. yeah um i'd i'd prefer violence if it progresses the plot or reveals character yeah 
And uh, after about five pages, I think we've got the character. See, I feel like there's something almost comforting about a comic book that is willing to be hand over fist admitting that this is a guy that's just going to kick monsters' asses and that's pretty much what it's going to be. It's not trying to be something it's not. It's not trying to sort of kind of put forth a a message or a narrative that is, uh, you know, so outlandish beyond, I guess, the the station of the world it's built in. Uh, yeah, I, I just feel like sometimes people, uh, creators who create, I guess, monster stories, stories about war and all those types of things, sometimes they, they need to own the world that they're creating and understand that sometimes it's just a monster story. I mean, other times it might be a monster story with some humanism to it, but sometimes it's just a monster story, you know? Yeah. Look, I think that's absolutely a valid way of looking at it, and I can see people enjoying it for that reason. Um, I wouldn't like like to say it lost me, but Mm. I did find myself sort of um, waiting for the fight scenes to end. All right, Gary, present your something listenable. Oh, okay. So my something listenable is uh, oh, postmodern jukebox. Actually, bear with me one moment. I always forget the person's name because it's not just postmodern jukebox. It's uh, it was J- Jason, wasn't it, Jason? Scott Bradley. Apologies uh, to Scott Bradley, but I forgot his name. <laughs> and so definitely not Jason. Um. No, definitely not Jason. Um, <laughs> So Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox is not so much a brand as it is like an umbrella um, sort of, um, I guess. It's a, a band where the singers, the musicians all rotate in and out. They do mm. cover songs of mostly reasonably modern songs, but they mm. recontextualize them into mm. sometimes even sort of um, slightly other different variations on those themes of jazz versions. i got a bit of lounge influences as well, if we're going to throw another genre in there. Yeah, there's certainly some of that in there. There's um, uh, gospel music occasionally. Like They, they mm. don't stick necessarily to one style, but they have that sort of... Um, those few styles that they work in and recontextualise songs in. Now, you sent that to me to listen to, but I actually found myself going to YouTube to see if they actually had any videos. And, uh, I mean, I feel like to actually appreciate uh, this project, if you want to call it that as a whole, is to actually look at the videos and watch them and... It's it's actually nothing shy of impressive, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, for instance, the you mentioned the swapping in and out of band members in different roles and things like that. Uh, I think the the video of this uh, project that I, that I saw that uh, most impressed me was the when they tackled the friends theme. The 
different sort of singers that jumped on for different uh, bits and what the song kind of does is it starts at 1920s but as it progresses in the chorus and the different verses it actually moves thematically through the different styles of the decades that follow so that was interesting but then at the same time the uh, there was a really impressive video of this project where there's uh, a piano rendition of Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden, which sounded a lot better than the original song, which is really hard to achieve. So, yeah. Yeah, I know exactly the one you mean. Um, you're right. The visuals are amazing. Uh, there was a while there where um, Postmodern Jukebox came out to Australia and found themselves in Brisbane lining up with the same weekend as Supernova Brisbane. This happened like four or five years in a row. So myself and a few other (laughs) comics people had like almost the tradition of going and watching Postmodern Jukebox perform in Brisbane. Um, And, yeah, they're a band that's as important to watch visually as it is to listen to. Um, They're incredible. They usually bring out somebody like a, a tap dancer or something as well from on stage. And they're just so perfectly named as well. Mm. I mean, it, it really is a postmodern jukebox. It's basically a, you know, a jukebox of songs put through a different lens of different styles. So uh, yeah. it's aptly named. Uh, I find them really useful for putting on in the background music while I'm working because they're not distracting, um, but they are enjoyable. Right. Yep. Got you. Now, my something listenable is the Assassin's Creed Valhalla soundtrack. Now, we haven't really spoken about any games on this podcast so far, but I want we'll do something a little bit different with this pitch. I wanted to get what your thoughts were initially of it. I absolutely loved it. Um, The the sort of video game music is incredible for that sort of atmospheric feel where you can just sort of lose yourself in it a little bit. Um, And it works really well with the the sort of choral that they... Not not every piece in in the Assassin's Creed music was choral, but quite a lot of them were. Um, It reminded me of another one of my favourite video game uh, soundtracks, which is um, Rome Total War has okay. like, uh, yep. a lot of sort of choral elements to the music in it. Um, yep. I, I don't know how period accurate it is, but it certainly yes. felt to me, you know, being mostly ignorant, it felt great. It felt period accurate. So, have you seen the Viking show? Uh, only a few episodes. Okay. So Assassin's Creed Valhalla, now you don't really need to know the. we're not really going to go into what the game is about because that's you need a whole podcast series to even cover half of that. So the soundtrack itself is, well, it's, a, it's basically about Vikings invading England around, uh, I believe it's around... 12th, 13th or 14th century England. Now, the soundtrack itself is by composer Sarah uh, Shackner and Jesper Kidd 
and Norwegian composer Einar Selvik. Now, Selvik is responsible for the music behind the Vikings TV show. So it's very, and what I've often taken from that music, it's very sort of paganistic. It, it's very sort of, uh, there's lots of indigenous sort of uh, Viking uh, sort of soundscapes and it's very uh, atmospheric in that regard. Um, it's a, I guess it's um, very period specific, the sounds of it. The the really great thing about that as well is that if you're a if you're a metalhead, then Einar Selvik is a Norwegian musician who used to be the drummer for a uh, black metal band called Gorgoroth. So, and he's also the lead singer in a metal band called Wardruna. So it kind of what I feel that I like about this soundtrack is it's by Europeans who are delving into their sort of their ancestry as the core influences that end up stylistically on the soundtrack itself. So uh, that's that's basically my pitch. You don't really need to to sort of play the game. You don't need to play Assassin's Creed Valhalla. But if you want to see, hear something different, if you want to hear sort of sounds that are more, I guess, uh, you know, very sort of European and influenced by the uh, the bygone eras of pagans, then it's it's a great soundtrack to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was an excellent choice. So we're going to get straight into what we thought about each other's pitches. Uh, so, Anthony, is Letterkenny your kind of weird? Yeah, I really think it is. It's, uh, I mean, I feel like it's the right type of sort of narrative meets sort of humour meets just sort of, I guess, explanation on on the way that we see different sort of, I guess, problems in society. But it's, I mean, it had me in stitches, so it's definitely my kind of weird. Excellent. Now, Gary, in terms, uh, in terms, in terms of gargoyles, is that your kind of weird? Uh, definitely, I'd say it's very, very hard to be nostalgic for something that you weren't particularly into at the time. But gargoyles seems to manage that. Um, the The episodes that I saw were great. Um, yeah. You know, they, they say that the uh, the golden age of comics is twelve. Uh, the same thing is probably true of animated TV shows, um, and Gargoyles is very much a, a golden age animated TV show as far as I'm concerned. Definitely enjoyed it. Perfect. Do you have something to ask me about something readable? Uh, yeah, so uh, tell me, Anthony, did you find that that issue of Fantastic Four, 352, was your kind of weird? I'm sort of on the fence about it. I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes in turn, but only because of your pitch. If I was just going to look at the comic book as it sits, I would say no, but your pitch was pretty convincing in the way that it's very uh, a good example of, I guess, what can be achieved from a comic book writer's uh, end. And, I mean, I haven't really started uh, studied comic books at university or anything or in school, but... I feel like this would be a good example of sort of comic book Americana. So, yes, that this is my kind of weird. So, Gary, is Grit Issue 1 your kind of weird? Uh, I'm going to do a, a cop-out answer to that and say 
I'll let you know when I've read issue two, three, four, five, six, and seven, because it, it all depends on whether or not they pay off on this world building that they're doing. Just as a, a, a single unit, what it was, probably not, um, but there was enough there to make me wonder whether they're going to pay off on it. Um, so I think I'll leave you with saying that issue three turns it into a rather charming storyline, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Okay. So on to something listenable. Okay. So tell me, Anthony, did you find that uh, Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox was your kind of weird? I really do. I kind of, you know, uh, when I hear this, I kind of just want to grab my wife's hand and head straight to the dance floor. It just kind of has that kind of vibe. I'm actually curious um, as to what the the sort of the mosh pit does when, when they watch this sort of this band perform live, or whether it's a sit-down experience or whether it's people actually get up into the pit, so to speak. But um. Uh, yeah, definitely my kind of weird. Excellent. And to finish us up, Gary, is the Assassin's Creed Valhalla original soundtrack your kind of weird? Absolutely. 110%. Uh, I enjoyed that immensely. Um, I thought it was really well done. Uh, it was thought-provoking, and as I said, I wondered how sort of genuine it is. Hearing mm. what you had to say about who composed it, it makes me... Um, think that it's far more likely to be genuine, but whether it is or isn't, it's absolutely enjoyable music. Excellent. So, and I feel like it'd be a great little listening piece for Talgard as well. That's a really good point. It would would, uh, pair very well. (laughs) Speaking of Talgard, we're going to go on a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, I'm going to have a quick discussion and interview with Gary about his webcomic series, Talgard. Hello again, everyone. Producer Andy here once more. The last few times I've asked you to visit sodaandteddypaths.com, the sister website to this very podcast, where you can read all about the latest on comics, science fiction, and horror. I mean, I I couldn't have been nicer about it. I, I, I patiently explained that at sodaandtelepaths.com you can read all the site's interviews with people in the entertainment industry, along with movie and comic reviews and opinion pieces. But you didn't go. Why not? What do you people what do you people want? Tell me. I, I, I mean, are you too good for us? Is that it? Oh, what do you want, oh worthy listeners? Huh? Fucking unicorns? Huh? Okay. Fine. There you go. See? Are you happy now? Fine. There. There you go. Fucking unicorn. Great big unicorn with two horns riding a skateboard through Megan Fox's bathroom. You happy? Sodaandtelepaths.com Go there now. Or the unicorn dies. All right. So, Gary, you've been creating Talgard now for, I'm going to say, what, two years? Is that right, or has it been longer? Uh, I think it's probably closer to three since I first started working on it, but that's just because it takes a while for these things to, to take off. 
Okay, right. And so that the listeners can sort of understand you and what Talgard is about, give us a bit of an idea of uh, prior to Talgard what you were doing in the uh, in the creative world. Okay, so I have a, a bit of a history as an editor at Gestalt Publishing. Yep. Um, so for many years I've been doing conventions with Gestalt Publishing. Yep. And um, wherever you are, you always get people coming up to you with their ideas for their enormous epic story that they'd like to tell in comic book form. And <laughs> I, I, I appreciate and I applaud the passion that goes with wanting to tell a 500-page epic <laughs> but um, reality is reality is one. There's there's no sort of financial way you can make uh, a 500 page epic from an unknown writer mm. work. And most people, when they're starting out in comics, are making a lot of mistakes. Mm. And you're much, much, much better off making a mistake in a short story mm. and learning from that than you are getting 150 pages into your 500-page epic and realising that you've made a mistake in simple things like story structure mm. and then trying to decide whether you're going to fix it or scrap it or what you're going to do. Um, yep. That's burnout. People get burnout from that. Yeah. So I found myself convention after convention telling people to do short stories. Yeah. Um, usually I'd recommend doing an eight-page short story, but, you know, you can do a story in four pages. You have your act one, your setup on page one. Page two and three are the progression towards the resolution, act two. And then you turn a page and get to page four and you get your reveal, your turn-page reveal and your resolution on page Four sort of. Mm. It's very easy to have a story structure on a four-page comic, and mm. I spent so long giving people that advice. I eventually thought, well, maybe I should take that advice myself and, mm. and do it and do it again and again. And that's what uh, Talgard is. It's uh, uh, I've heard it described as flash fiction. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess that that has some substance to it. That. Yeah, opinion. I mean, that, that, that sort of puts it in the context that people can understand. Yeah. But they're four-page short stories all about Talgard, who is, um, if Conan the Barbarian was the smartest man in the room, then you would have Talgard. Mm. I'd um, kind of be a bit frightened if Conan was the smartest man in the room. It doesn't really say much about the people in the room, does it? <laughs> it doesn't, no. <laughs> if... Um, if he was always the smartest man yeah, in the room. Okay. Yeah, okay. Good save. Yeah. So um, why 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 a Viking? I mean, you you can you have a plethora of stuff you could pull from influences wise. Why a Viking? Well, the so sword and sorcery is wonderful because the first point is everybody understands sword and sorcery. If you plonk somebody down in the middle of uh, Game of Thrones or Conan the Barbarian or any of those sort of feels for a world, people know what's happening. And you need to be able to hit the ground running on a four-page story. Mm. You don't have enough time to set up the world and, and explain to everyone what's going on in four pages. You need everyone to understand. So that's one reason why. Two, it's a setting that affords you any kind of storytelling you want. If you want to do a really human story that's uh, about nothing but people and their interactions, you can 
completely and utterly do that in this world. Mm. And if you want to tell a fantastical story that involves magic and um, other worldly things, you can also do that in this world. It's it's uh, very versatile. Mm. Well, on that end, what kind of what sort of influences directly do you have around fantasy, around magical storytelling, around warriors, and I guess uh, even sort of on the medieval standpoint, where do you sort of what's your go to around those um, around those genres? My biggest influence, and this might seem a little unusual, is Terry Pratchett. Which are you okay. familiar with? Yeah, uh, like his Discworld series, or yes, yes, absolutely. So um, that's a, a world where everything is magical, but also deeply human and real. Mm. Um, the characters that he creates and or created since he's passed away now were first and foremost they were people. Yeah. So even if they were powerful wizards or witches or whatever they may be. Before they were that, they were people. And um, I'll never be as funny as Terry Pratchett, mm. but I can take away that from him, which is that if you don't have that basis of character that's a person, mm. nobody's going to care about the fact that they can magic a, a mountain away. Now, going to your time with guest art publishing, and Wolfgang's going to kick me in the ass for pronouncing it wrong up until now. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, when what is your what have you done with guest art publishing like in terms of uh, stories uh, uh, that you've sort of edited with them? Uh, so primarily, I was um, Wolfgang's sort of assistant editor. So I did uh, assistant editorial work on The Deep, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Um, I also did some assistant editorial work on Justin Randall's Changing Ways. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm not on every book. Have I got? credits because sometimes the amount of input that I did was not sufficient to warrant a credit. Yeah. Um, but the Stolt's a very small sort of company, so everybody's got their fingers in every pie. Yeah. As it were. Uh, so we all must wear many hats. <laughs> uh, from from how does your what you've learnt from editing until now, how does that I guess, impact the way that you approach your own storytelling? Oh, lots of different things in lots of different ways. Um, my first day at Gestalt, I was an intern and I was given two scripts. One was not very good. It was just an um, unsolicited submission. Mm. And the other one was uh, the first epi- uh, the first issue of The Deep. So that was a a test that Wolfgang gave me. He gave me two scripts and said, read both of these and tell me what you think. And I gave him some notes on the the not very good one. Mm. And I gave him the other one and said, I think you should publish this. This is really good. Um, As it turns out, they were already, you know, deep into production already at that point. Obviously, Wolfgang knew that it was a really good script. Yeah. Um, But this was before Tom Taylor was Tom Taylor as he is now. Famous. Yeah. so I would say that what I learned was, one, seeing some of the best at work like that, yeah. that teaches me so much. Um, I also learned uh, how to be able to break down um, a story that was pitched to us, see why it wasn't working. Mm. Um, quite often you do learn by seeing what's not working more than you do learn by seeing what is working. Mm. Um, any sort of novel comic that you read published by a publisher 
is a certain level of quality. Um, reading some stories that are not that level of quality can be helpful in teaching you where the pitfalls are in mm. writing. Um, which would, contrast, you, know, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, so I would recommend to anyone who's thinking of getting into writing to share scripts with your friends who are at a similar level than you are mm. and try and see where they went wrong. It's a lot easier to see where someone else went wrong than it is to see where you went wrong yourself. Well, you're just kind of robbing yourself of a potential payday there, Gary. You should have said <laughs> um, hire an editor like me. <laughs> yeah, um, if, you can, if you can do that, I would recommend it. I can't recommend it enough. Yep. A good editor is, is, is worth their weight in gold. Yeah, yeah. Um, their guest out publishing usually has some sort of, I guess, uh, appearance at cons, at least in recent years. Obviously, that's not happening now. Uh, are there plans in the pipe that around doing like a digital con for guest help publishing people or uh, staff, I mean, or uh, appearances at digital cons? What's what's that or is that just too early to tell? Um, there was one digital con that we were going to do last year and then just had um, scheduling problems. Okay. Which is an unfortunate thing that happens. I don't believe there's any plans for Gestalt to do a Gestalt centric one. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that, like, uh, as I understand it, most of the Australian conventions are planning to go ahead in some form this year. Mm, so I'd imagine it, it might be, yeah, such as it is. Like, I believe Oz Comic Con is doing a, what do they call it, a pop up con or something? Uh, okay, righto. Which I think essentially just means local guests only. Okay, no yeah, no interstate people, no overseas no. people. Yeah, none of those. Yeah. Um, so as you say, such as it is, that will be the case for this year and I would hope mm. touch wood, touch any kind of wood that you can get a hand on uh, that things would be back to normal for 2022. What would you say to someone who's listened to this podcast or heard about Talgard? What would you say to them and why should they check out Talgard Tome 1 and the upcoming release of Talgard Tome 2? Um, I would suggest that you go to garyproudly.com and have a read. <laughs> they are four-page stories. They're not very deep investments of time. Yeah. Um, and as I say to people at comms, you will find a story in this book that you like. Mm. Um, they may not all be for you, but I find that's the case with any sort of anthology. Um, if you read an anthology, you'll find one or two stories in it that really resonate with you. Um, the other thing about Talgard as well is that uh, each story is illustrated by a different uh, Australian creator. So yep. they're all written by me. They're all edited and lettered by Wolfgang, and they're all coloured by Justin Randall. So there's a certain um, feel to them all, especially provided by Justin's colouring. That means there's a cohesion and a consistency. Yep. Uh, but it's a really great book to see a wide range of incredible Australian artistic talent, ranging from seasoned pros who've been doing this for decades all the way to some people who I think this is their first published work. Right. Yep. Excellent. And, I mean, myself, for one, I really enjoy what I've seen of Talgard. I've seen four stories out of uh, what's going to appear in Time 2, and I I really like the the sort of the contrast between the different uh, I guess the artists involved 
Um, but at the same time, I, I sort of like the, the I guess, consistency or, or I guess you could call it symmetry in terms of with each story, I feel there's a different aspect of the Talgard main character that's you're sort of gradually peeling away at and digging into, which Ooh. is interesting. It's made clear through your sort of writing but then the other interesting part of it is is sort of a new sort of element to the character that you're starting to chip away at is also being revealed through the artist as well, which I've, I've found even more interesting. Like of the most uh, recent two that's been released, uh, I found the the one in, involving you know the, the sort of the village cult that's happening. I found what I found interesting in that is the the softer sort of line work of the of the artist kind of gave a little of the softer side of the character, if you know what I mean. And so for that. Uh, if that alone hasn't convinced someone to pick this up or at least go to your website and check it out before guest out release time two, then I don't know what else will, Gary. No, neither do I. Nicely put. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, you're doing great work, my friend. Uh, great work indeed. So um, for those uh, who, have listened, who have listened to this podcast, please check us out on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. It definitely helps out with the algorithm. Gary, where can everyone find you once again? Uh, GaryProudly.com or GestaltComics.com would be the best places to find my work. Very good. And for me, my name has been Anthony Pollock, and thank you very much, Gary, for appearing on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap, everyone. We'll see you next episode. Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free comedy to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.